Hi, everyone. My name's Anna, if I haven't met you yet. I'm going to be reading um, from God's Word to us tonight. Uh, and the readings start on page 7 of your zines. And we start with Isaiah chapter 61. That's Isaiah. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then following on uh, Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Surely, oh, whoops, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's pray and explore that remarkable passage together. Let's pray. Father, come to our hearts this evening. Open our hearts. Fill us with all joy and peace in believing. Fill us with the marvellous love of Jesus Christ. Empower us then. Free us 
liberate us, give us the oil of gladness, a crown of beauty. Uh, give us a garment of praise. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and by his spirit we pray. Amen. Amen. Huh? Okay. Advent uh, is an ancient season. It's the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Uh, and it's a chance in the so-called silly season, uh, and I feel its silliness, like you wouldn't believe, uh, to still our hearts and to focus on what matters, namely his appearing, his return, at which time all wrongs will be righted and grace and truth will reign. As a friend of mine says, there are no cold cases in the future kingdom of God. And so we wait patiently for the Lord to come, and we marvel at him and his saving work. We pray, come Lord, in eager expectation. There's an Advent prayer in the old Book of Common Prayer that speaks of Jesus Christ who came in the first instance in great humility. We learned that last week, donkeys. Uh, but we consider his first coming in great humility in light of his appearing, his coming again uh, when the prayer says that he will come in glorious majesty. So great humility to glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead. Cheeky Fres Presbyterian writer Frederick Buechner said, um, Bethlehem is not the end of our journey, but only the beginning. Not home, but the place through which we must pass if ever, ever we are to reach home at last. And so through Bethlehem, great humility, we wait patiently for this Lord in glorious majesty. We're hoping through Advent that you have a marvellous Advent and a marvellous Christmas, but secretly, or maybe not secretly, I'm hoping and praying for a renewal of amazement in me and in uh, uh, worshippers of Jesus Christ in the parish of Churchill. Today we've got another They Marvelled at Him text from Luke chapter 4. It's universally acknowledged that Jesus astounded people wherever he went. Read a gospel. Uh, this Advent. People were drawn to him. They were attracted to him. He was a magnet for particular kinds of people um, and a lightning rod for other kinds of people. In verses 14 and 15 of Luke chapter 14, the opening of our text today on page 7, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, their Jewish churches, their gatherings, and everyone praised him. There was something about Jesus. There's a Greek word used here, a verb, to describe the feeling, and it's thalmadzo. It means to be awestruck, to marvel, to be sort of out of one's senses with excitement, thalmadzo, uh, to be astonished, to wonder at, to be amazed. Napoleon Bonaparte answered a question, his own question that he asked a colleague. He said these words, I marvel, <laughs> Thalmadzo, you see, I marvel that where the ambitious dreams of myself and of Alexander and of Caesar should have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and of nations. Napoleon was amazed that Jesus demanded hearts and won hearts 
And he said, today, millions would die for him. I count myself as one of them. The word is actually in verse 22, Thalmazo, uh, verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed. That's the Thalmazo word there. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. This is Joseph's son. He shouldn't be spectacular. I mean, he's just a carpenter's boy. We'll come back to that. Notice here in this text, he also evoked reaction from people. It wasn't that he was Simon the likable everywhere he went. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard Jesus' prodding comments. They got up and drove him out of town. Whenever I see that line, I think of Rambo being driven out of his little town. I reveal my age. And yet in verse 32, there's a continu- this is a continual refrain throughout the Gospels. Verse 32, they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Jesus still causes marvelling today. Um, even those who aren't sure, even those who aren't yet followers of Jesus Christ, often still admire Jesus Christ. Everyone seems to want Jesus in their corner. Have a look at the op-eds that appear in the paper as Christmas rolls by. I discovered this when I was at Sydney University. I went into the library and into the stack, for those of you who know it, an enormous amount of books on books on books, uh, shelves on shelves on shelves, and one section of uh, the Fisher Library is devoted to religion, and a large section of that is devoted to the life of Jesus Christ, like half a floor. And as far as I could tell, flicking through these books, I mean, obviously not all of them, but just sort of taking a you know, a fairly quick survey through half a floor of books, no one seems to be attacking Jesus, saying he wasn't good, that somehow he was a force for evil. No one's saying that. No one's saying he promoted a toxic culture. No one sort of attacks Jesus for his warlike tendencies. Nobody says, ah, well, early Jesus was okay, but not later Jesus. That doesn't happen with the life of Jesus. Everyone, in some form or another, Thalmadzo, amazed, marvelling, astounded. I know a guy, pretty messed up. He read uh, in pain, opened up Matthew chapter 1 and kept reading Matthew's gospel until he got to the point in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, whoever looks at a person lustfully has already committed adultery with that person in their heart. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, instead of hating that comment and running from it, which I presume many people do, they're just like, uh, you know, I don't know what to do with that. This man said, finally, someone telling the truth, not changing the goalposts to suit desires. And so he became a follower of Jesus on the back of that comment, pretty unusual. Most people come, become a follower of Jesus because they learn about his great love or the salvation he brought, or forgiveness that he offers, confidence that he brings, hope that comes to the resurrection. This guy became a Christian because of a verse like that, because he said, I can trust Jesus. I can trust him. Later he said to me, reading Jesus was like looking into the eyes of God and falling in. I read Jesus, I got God, Thalmadzo. Marveled, he marveled. Last week, Rowan opened the series with the entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus Christ coming to visit us in great humility, ahead of his coming again in glorious majesty. This week, why we stop marveling? Why we lose the edge? Got some thoughts on that from the text today. 
Because our passage starts with Thalmazzo, with marveling, but it ends, like last week, with people trying to do him in, trying to throw him off a cliff. Um, and today, tonight, you'll have an opportunity to throw him off a cliff. I don't mean literally, obviously. But you'll have an option of leaving him at the door when you leave tonight. You'll have an option of editing, editing him out of your story, of not giving a voice to the thalmadzo you feel, not living in wonder, not following him, but uh, running on your own agenda. So, if you turn the page on page 9, there are four reasons there that we stop marvelling from the text today. Uh, the third one, I've got a slight change. I can't believe I missed it, but middle of preaching this morning, I'm like, wow, how did I miss that this week? <laughs> so look forward to that. I want to change point three very briefly. So reasons we stop marveling. First, we don't get why the news is good news. We don't see why it's such good news. Or we don't feel it, verses 16 to 19. Secondly, we don't want someone else to be the hero, not deep down. Uh, we're addicted to ourselves, verses 20, 21. Third, we doubt it could come from someone so unimpressive, especially someone you know. This is the familiarity one, the familiarity breeding content from verse 22. And fourthly, we just don't like to be challenged. Um, you know, it's easier if Jesus agrees with me, but he doesn't, and uh, so we lose the wonder. He ends up looking more like me, which is a problem. And then I want to conclude by just giving you an antidote to the loss of wonder attached to those four points. So firstly... We don't get why the news is good news. We fail to see the news as good, supremely good, ultimately good, from God, and therefore, uh, no greater source uh, for the news and no greater news than this news. Look at verse 16 uh, with me. Jesus went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he'd been brought up. It's important for the narrative. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, the synagogos, where they gathered together as, as Jewish people to hear the Torah, the law, and the prophets, as was his custom. He went to church uh, each week. And then he gets a chance to read the Bible, <laughs> uh, much the same as we read the Bible just a moment ago. He stood up to read, and uh, there's no book binding then, it's a scroll, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah written 700 years before Jesus, was handed to him. The reason why he can read the prophet Isaiah is that Isaiah was written well before he, he lived. Unrolling the scroll, he finds the place, he goes looking for it, where it is written, Isaiah 61, we read it first, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. We're going to sing this in a moment's time. And recovery of sight for the blind, even the spiritually blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, the year of, of grace. Jesus is reading Isaiah the prophet and Isaiah wrote about, under the power of the Spirit, he wrote about one to come, one to come on whom the Spirit of God would rest with power on this one not named to proclaim good news 
to the poor, specifically these things, the binding up of the brokenhearted, that's healing, um, salve on, the, on, a, on a broken heart, freedom for captives, release for prisoners. Now there's a context in Isaiah that doesn't mean that every prisoner goes free, although every prisoner has the opportunity to go free, liberated by this good news for the brokenhearted, the captive, the prisoner, the poor. Jesus adds, it's not in Isaiah 61, but Jesus adds sight to the blind. The year of grace, the year of the Lord's favour, his activity, his arrival. Isaiah goes on to talk about the outcome of what happens with this good news to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them, and by the way, get this, a crown, which is solid, a crown of beauty instead of a crown of ashes flowing about uh, your shoulders. There's something about uh, feeling sad that can feel like a heavy crown of ashes flowing about your shoulders. But Jesus promises a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Give me that crown, O Lord. Give me that oil. Show me where the garment is. For any of us who are grieving, mourning, to any of us who have a spirit of despair, you see how this is good news? The greatest of all news? From ashes to a crown of beauty, from mourning to the oil of joy, from a spirit of despair, the garment of praise. The context here is he's speaking to people in exile, uh, under the weight of their own sin and judgment, those in Zion who look and say that their city has been destroyed because of their own sin and the judgment of God is coming upon them. And the prophet Isaiah says there's a moment where someone is going to come and lift you up, raise you from the dead. Arise, shine, your light has come. The, spirit, the, uh, the glory of the Lord has risen on you, Isaiah chapter 61. So whatever else you think about it, this is good news. And it's good news to the poor. Which, by the way, is why we do our city care lunch. People who are downtrodden and are hurting. And by the way, you might... I know people, are, I know people have come to church here tonight with a lot of pain on their heart. By the way, coming to the City Care Lunch is joyful because you meet people who've got the same experiences as you. And they know it too, and we know it, and I get that the experience of life is, is uh, often different for, for our guests at that City Care Lunch than for many of us. But here is good news to the poor, but in Isaiah's language, the poor are those downtrodden by their own sin under the judgment of God, we, in the end, are the poor. We are the captives needing to be freed. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, as well as saying, blessed are the poor. I guess a bit like King David, who was not short on coin, but could still say, I am poor and needy. UK evangelist Rico Tice says this, if you don't think that Christianity is the best news you've ever heard, then you can be sure you've not understood it. Tish Warren, an author in the, the United States, she writes this, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache. 
our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We're thirsty. We want him. We need him to come. We don't recognize it as good news. Secondly, we, we, we don't want someone else to be the hero. Not deep down. Jesus is the hero of the Christian story. Not you, not me. And this is such liberating news. It's one of the gifts of the Christian gospel to humanity that when we discover that we are not the hero of the story, but rather Jesus Christ is, then we begin to become godlike because to become godly is to be humble. But those of us who want to be the star of our movie, this is not so good news. Verse 20, Jesus reads Isaiah 61. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and sits down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I'll come back to that. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture, this Isaiah 61, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I get chills when I read that. You're in church that day, synagogue that day. He reads a passage that everybody knows, that everybody's memorized, that represents the hope for everybody in Zion. And he says, as you listen to me speak, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because here I am, giving good news to the poor, Jesus says. I am the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. My life will be a life of binding, of healing, of liberating and proclaiming. Eventually his death will be the death for my sin, his resurrection, my hope. But he, in the end, is the hero of the story. Now, why is that liberating? Why is it good news? And the answer is because God didn't design us to be curved in on self. We are designed, knit together in our mother's womb, to be curved upwards towards God in worship and humility and outwards towards others in service and sacrifice. And it's in the Christian gospel that we gain this narrative. It means that you're not the hero of the story. So example, you read the story of David, and I'm not David there to slay my Goliath. Jesus is the true and better David, and I am someone in the Israelite army for whom Jesus has secured my victory. It's marvelous, you see. Jesus is the hero, not me. Third, we doubt it could come from someone so unimpressive, especially someone we grew up with. This is the familiarity breeds contempt uh, reason. And if you're writing notes, you could perhaps pop that off to the side of point number three. I think being human is amazing. I love Chesterton's comment in Orthodoxy when he says, the sense of the miracle of humanity itself should always be more vivid to us than any marvels of power, of intellect, of art, and of civilization. Mere existence is a miracle. The mere man on two legs as such should be felt as something more heartbreaking than any music or more startling than any caricature. I wonder why we're surprised that God will become a human being. You made humans a little lower than God. You crowned them with glory and honor. But he became... a God became a weak human being, no armies to command, no beauty to attract us to him, no paparazzi in the end. I'm sure verse 22 all spoke well of him and were thaumadzo, amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. But in the end they say, this is just Joseph's son, it's a little backhand at Joseph, really. We know this guy's dad. We grew up with him, we went to primary school together. 
I mean, he was a good kid and all. But I don't get it. He's not that impressive. So they set him aside. Uh, Dr. Natasha Moore from the Centre for Public Christianity. Uh, if you're in the city on Wednesdays during Advent, in Wednesday week, uh, Dr. Moore will be speaking at the uh, 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 Wednesday morning Lent service, uh, Advent service at 7.30 on Wednesday week. She writes these words. She said, Jesus rolls up the scroll, uh, hands it back and sits down. Everyone's looking at him and says, and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But the people, his neighbours, they're amazed. They know this guy. Isn't this Joseph's son, they say to each other? She writes, it's hard to credit the idea that this person, right in front of them, this man of humble origins, Nazareth, what good can come from it? Could be the fulfilment of their loftiest hopes. Hope of the world. This isn't what power looks like. Not what revolution looks like. How can the kingdom of God come from a mate in primary school? Familiarity breeds contempt, and some of you know this is true over time. And yet the prophet Isaiah prophesied as such when he said, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Half the people won't even try to be amazed. Isaiah says he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, this one not named. And yet he's despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. But, wrote Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed, bound, brokenhearted, bound. We're just like sheep. We just do what we want to do almost all the time. But the Lord has laid on this unnamed one the iniquity of us all. Don't let familiarity stop you from being amazed. And lastly, we don't like to be challenged. In verses 24 through 30, they think, well, this is unimpressive. Jesus picks their hearts. He says, verse 23, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal thyself. Fix yourself up, Jesus, and you'll also tell me, uh, do here in our hometown what we heard you've done in Capernaum. You, you'll ask me to dance, but I don't dance. Uh, verse 24, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then Jesus prods them. Verses 25 through 27, he draws on Elijah and Elisha, two characters from the Old Testament, and he says in both those stories, it was the outsider that got the miracle, not the insider cynic trying to run and rule their own lives. People don't like being told that they're insider cynics. So in verse 28, the people in the synagogue were furious. When they heard this, they got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to simply throw him off the cliff, which shouldn't have been hard. But, Salmazzo, he walked right through the crowd. Another miracle. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Somehow they were awestruck as they separate and he goes on his way. He just slips through. His time to die has not yet come. So before we take bread and wine in a few moments' time, I want to talk briefly about an antidote to the loss of wonder. Against these four points, if you're looking on page nine. 
Firstly, we need to recapture again the wonder of the gospel. It is good news, the very best of news. It is the ultimate news. It is from God. It is about the human soul. It is about the human body. It is about the world we live in, that broken-hearted people can be bound, healed, lifted up. I'm going to say it in a moment. Lift up your hearts. That prisoners caught in sin, can be freed, that my blind eyes can be opened ahead of the renewal of all things. Surely this is the best news that there is. Second, uh, we need to take our eyes off self and onto Jesus. He is the wonder, not me, but it's hard to do that um, in the world in which we live. Uh, Note in our text today, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and maybe we need to learn the same habit, to fasten our eyes on Jesus. Less on self, more on him. So to recapture the wonder of the gospel, we need to take our eyes off self. We're not the hero, not deep down, and onto the true hero and marvel at him. Thirdly, uh, in a world of celebrity, we need to um, marvel at Jesus Christ, not anyone else not impressive people. We need to resist any moves to admire mere humans. I'll tell you why. Because when you fawn after a mere human being, you destroy them, not just you, not just your heart. God has not designed them to be worshipped. There's only one who's, uh, who is uh, ordained to be worshipped, and that is the eternal Son, who is John chapter 1, verse 18, himself God, full of grace and truth. He is the one we worship. When we worship another either in fear or admiration, we destroy their place in the world as dust, as a humble one, a potential son or a daughter to take their place in worshipping and marvelling at the one true Christ. And fourthly and finally, against point number four, we need to invite challenge into our lives rather than resisting it. In 2020, invite it. Bring it on. Say to God, show me where I'm wrong. I assume it's everywhere. You know, I assume there's so much to learn. Reveal to me uh, where I sin and uh, take away the sort of uh, things inside my heart. I speak from personal testimony where I tend to defend myself. Open up in me the points of pride and replace, wash it away with the humility of Jesus Christ. And then forgive me and show me the way of righteousness and peace and love. This Advent, and as you take bread and wine in a few moments' time, marvel at Jesus Christ. Small bit of bread, small bit of wine, they speak of a great love. And then pray to him, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, in a few moments' time, we're going to pray Amazing Grace. Uh, We're going to sing Amazing Grace. We're going to say Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The sound of grace alone is sweet to these wretched ears, to these blind eyes. You've opened our blind eyes to the wonder of the gospel. You have found us, lost, freed us as um, captives and given us a new spirit with a new hope and new joy. May we never cease to marvel at this. We pray this in the name 
of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.